I feel so full of faith for this year ahead. And I don't feel full of faith because of um, any other thing except of what God has said over us as his people. That's why I feel full of faith. I feel full of faith for the life of this church simply because of what God has said over the life of this church. Not that any one of us is particularly clever, but because God is faithful to his word. And his word is always returns, completing what it's been set out to do. And so I feel full of faith for that. I feel like I said a couple of years, a couple of weeks ago, that this, it feels like there's a baton change that has happened and is happening. And some of the pioneers that pioneered this church, last week we said good, good, goodbye to Glenn and Honey, who have just spent their first day in Hong Kong, and I trust they're having a great time. But they were one of the pioneers of this church. And there's a baton change from those that pioneered this church, handing over to those that need to take this church forward into the future. And it's not going to be the same people. Next week, we will say goodbye to Andrew Derbidge, who's been with us for, for 10 years, right from the beginning. He's going off to, the, uh, to study in Birmingham at a Bible college there, and it's a whole new season for him, a whole new phase in his life, and the baton is once again being extended to those that will take it and say, we'll run further, and we'll run this next season with God. And I find those things very exciting, absolutely very exciting. So I trust you're going to be encouraged. As I preach this morning, I want to say, I'd just like to pick up on what both Mike and uh, the others shared this morning. For me, I want to encourage you that as we face this decade, that increasingly you would root your life in Christ, that you'd root your life into Christ. Uh, Jesus is the only foundation that is sure. And this sounds like a cliche, even as I'm saying it this morning, you know, we sing all the time, he's the rock of ages, he's, he's the sure foundation for our feet, but he really is. Those who build their house, who build their lives on the rock of Jesus, when the storm comes, will not be shaken. And I, having said I'm full of faith for this year, I also do want to be realistic. It is going to be tough economically, but I want to say to you that if you build your life on the rock, when the, the foundation of Jesus, when the storm comes, you will not be shaken. So don't put your faith in the economy because the economy will be up and down this year. Don't put your faith in your talent because sometimes your talent is useful, sometimes your talent is not useful. Put your faith in the one who's able to root your life in the right kind of things and put your faith in Christ this year, all right? So having said that, I want to just um, go back to our study in Ephesians and I've called this message this morning, Roots or Shoots. Roots or shoots. Can you please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3? And for those of you that have been on holiday for the last three or four weeks, I want to encourage you to get onto the webpage and to listen to the messages because this is a continuous one study, really, if you like. And we've been looking at the book of Ephesians. And so I want to reflect back on the first three chapters, which we've completed, because we're going to be looking to the next couple of chapters over the next month or so uh, to the church and how the church is organized from Ephesians 4 onwards. But um, the first three chapters of Ephesians concern the great salvation that we have in Christ. Uh, we saw the wonder and the mystery of the gospel of grace that God has expressed in our salvation and that we're part of this wonderful new Israel, the church that God birthed, um, and that the Gentiles are part of this mysterious new thing that God has created that's not exclusively for Jews anymore, but that through the church, Gentiles like you and I can be part of God's salvation. And we're part of this great plan that God predestined before the foundation of the earth. And we were chosen. We were called. He reached into our lives. 
he, um, while we were dead in our sin, He still loved us. While we are nasty and ugly and horrible on the inside, God loves us perfectly. And He extends His grace to us and He says, I choose you. And He says, I choose you to be my friend. And I choose to walk with you. And I'm going to transform you from the inside out. That is the gospel of Jesus. And we, we looked about those, we looked into those things um, in the first two chapters. And then Paul uses these amazing pictures to describe the church. And he says uh, it's like being part of a city. He says it's like being part of a family. It's being like part of a, a building. Uh, and then he uses those words in chapter 2. He says we are prisoners for Christ. We are stewards of the gospel. We are ministers of the gospel. And we had a look at those things uh, in the past weeks. And then Ephesians 3, we had a look at this amazing prayer that Paul preaches, uh, that Paul prays for the church, Ephesians. And he said, I pray that you might be strengthened in your inner man, and we had a look at what that means, the inner man, that you might receive by the power of the Holy Spirit, you might receive the fullness of Christ and be transformed from the inside out and receive the fullness of Christ. And we had a look at, the, at what that meant. And uh, again, I want to encourage you, if you weren't around, get on the webpage and listen to, the, to, to what was um, preached. But I've been thinking around this statement that we've um, adopted as our vision statement for this church over the last month or so, rooted in Christ, planted in family, and fruitful in life. And uh, one of the readings that we read this week uh, in our daily readings was out of Matthew chapter 13, verse 19. And you know, you know the portion well. It's the story of the sower, the sower sowing seed. And this thought struck me. It's a very simple phrase, but in verse 6 it says this, when the sun rose, it's talking of the seed that has been um, scattered on stony stony soil. It says, when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered and died. Since they had no root, they withered and died. Uh, we have a wonderful park where we stay, and uh, in the Casbury Park, and it's fascinating to walk through the park because you can see these massive oak trees that have been standing for hundreds of years, and sometimes after storms, when the wind is blown, these huge trees are upturned. And the reason for that is that oak trees don't have a very deep root system. The, the root system goes along the surface of the soil. And if you have a wind that blows hard enough and long enough, these massive trees can just topple over. And that's a profound thing, if you think about it, that if you're... doesn't matter how big or how strong you look standing up, if the root doesn't go down deep enough, when the wind comes, even a huge tree falls over. And so the title of this message is Roots or Shoots, and it's a very simple thing. Uh, churches can be like that. Organizations can be like that. Things can grow very fast and seem to have a lot of success, and uh, the outward looks all full of foliage and, and full of greenery, but unless it's rooted deeply into things that are true and the foundation that will stand, it will either die a slow death or eventually it will topple over when the wind comes and blows. And so, Jesus said the same thing in the parable of the sower. He said, people that receive the word can have various responses to the word. And some that receive it quickly and receive it joyfully are like seeds that are sown on, the, on a stony place. And they spring up quickly, but because there's no root, they quickly fade. You see, putting down roots is something that people can't see, is it? I mean, you can't really see if someone's putting their roots down. 
In some ways, it's unglamorous to put your roots in deep because no one sees that. What people want to see is they want to see what's above the soil. They want to see the fruit. They want to see the greenery. They want to see what's lovely to look at. But unless the root is deep, when the tests come, we're not going to stand. And our source of strength is determined by the depth of the root in our lives. So I want to say quite simply that our study of Ephesians, really, I, I want to use it as, a, as an illustration, because our study of Ephesians, really, is unglamorous. It's the root stuff. It's not the foliage stuff. It's not the looking for the, the that. It's looking for the root of Christ to be deepened ever increasingly in our lives. And in some ways, it, it, it is unglamorous. In some ways, doctrine is unglamorous. We don't want doctrine sometimes. We want the miracles and the signs and the wonders, which are wonderful things. But unless doctrine is there to sustain you through moves of God, we won't stand. How many of you have heard stories in the last 10 years of great moves of God, which have ended in tragedy, which have ended in people having affairs and running off with their secretary, or in financial um, financial disaster, how many moves of God haven't ended like that? And why, why is it? It's always because the root is not deep enough. God doesn't bypass anybody. I heard a revivalist once say that God was just putting character into him because there wasn't enough time. Well, I just want to say God didn't do that with Moses, David, no one in the history of the Word of God. He doesn't bypass his process in our lives for anybody. He takes years and years and years to develop character in us by the power of His Spirit to transform us from the inside out so when revival comes, we have the character to sustain us. That's my point. All right? Jeremiah 9.24 encourages us and says for us to hunger after knowledge after God. I want to encourage you this year, let your roots for the knowledge of God go deep into your life. Colossians 3, verse 3, says our lives are hidden in Christ. Isn't that an amazing phrase to even think about? Our lives are hidden in Christ. Can I ask you this year to let that, go, that, that, that root go deep into your life? That your life is hidden in Christ. What does that mean? Let that go deep into your life. Deeply root yourself in that this year. So can I, having said that as an introduction, can I ask you to read with us, uh, Ephesians 3, verse 15. Paul praying, For this reason I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He might grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ might dwell in your heart through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen. We had a look at that already, and we uh, looked at some of the aspects of that prayer. We looked at the thing of the message I called the hidden person of the heart. And Paul prays, and he says, I want the, the hidden person of the heart to be strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit, so that you can receive the fullness of God. But today I just want to have a look at a, a different emphasis of, 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 of this portion, and it's towards the end, which just says that together with all the saints, you might know what the height and breadth and length 
and depth and know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. I want to look at that this morning. Knowing the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge and that for all of us, the determination of our heart this year would be to know the love of Christ. To know the fullness of His love. To know the heart and breadth and depth of His love for us and for each other. And really what I said a couple of weeks ago is that when Paul uses this phrase, he's asking something that is impossible. Uh, Really to know the love of Christ is impossible. It's something that surpasses knowledge. He uses that phrase. He wants us to know what is unknowable. He wants us to know the unknowable love of Jesus, this vast love of God that in a sense is unknowable. He says to us, I want your hearts to be after that. And... uh, Can we set our hearts to that this year, to knowing the love of Christ that will transform our lives but also transform the community in in which we live? And I said two weeks ago, I said that as it's, it's very hard to understand that, but we can start to understand and know that as we start to grasp in a small measure just how much Jesus loves us. And when we start to understand how much Jesus loves us and we have great revelation of our sonship, that we are not servants primarily, we are sons first and servants second. As we know that God loves us like a son, all of us. We are no longer orphans, but we are sons. Once we begin to understand that and are grasped with that, and revelation in our hearts grows with that, it transforms everything. Because then you're no longer a beggar, you are standing as a father stands with a son, and you are interacting with God on that basis. It is a profound difference. Servants are always anxious. Servants are always wondering if they're doing the right thing. Servants are always motivated by something of fear because they're not quite secure in who they are. They are simply a servant in a household. We are not simply servants in a household. We are sons in a family. Well, I thought that was pretty good, but anyway. We are sons in a family. And I said a couple of weeks ago that... The love of God flows in all directions in our lives. We are rooted into the love of God. It's, we root ourselves down. We love each other. It goes outward. Uh, it goes upward. The atmosphere of our heart is love. When, you're living, when you are living with the atmosphere of your heart being love, it is an amazing atmosphere to live in. And sometimes when the atmosphere of our home is not love, when the atmosphere of our home is frustration or it's, uh, it's irritation, it's not always a nice place to be. When the atmosphere of your heart or the atmosphere of your home is love, it's a nice place to be. Isn't that true? And so Paul says that the reason for that is so that you might be filled up to the full measure of the fullness of God. The highest thing we should be setting our hearts to is becoming, good, is becoming God-filled people. So I want to ask this question to you this morning. If that is the highest goal... If the highest goal is to know the love of God, which surpasses surpasses knowledge, to know the love of Christ, that surpasses knowledge, the height, the depth, the breadth of that, how do we know that? How do we grow in that? How do we root ourselves in that love? And uh, here are some thoughts for you this morning to think about and to hopefully, in your own times with God, meditate on. And uh, I want to say the writing of J.R. Packer has been very helpful to me in the last month. Um, as well as uh, continually my study through Michael Eaton's commentaries on these portions. So I want to just reference those two men and a guy called Gene Edwards as well who um, wrote a book called Three Kings about David, Absalom, and Saul. It's a very nice little book if you want to read something in two hours and uh, 
it's transformed my understanding in this last month of how to lead and what God looks for in our hearts. So I want to recommend that book as well. But um, here are some things that I want to share with you this morning. As Christians, as Bible-believing Christians, as those that, are, that love Jesus, it's good that we can clearly state the gospel to others. We can clearly say this is what the gospel is, this is what it means to be saved, this is what it means, and to define that and explain it to others. That's a good thing. It's good to, to have good doctrine, in other words. Um, it's good to know what is not good doctrine so that we don't stumble and fall and get distracted by things that are not really issues at all. That's also good and necessary. But I've discovered the, the longer that I'm alive and the more that I walk with God that there's something that's quite rare in people and it's, rare in, it's, not, it's not true for all Christians either. There's a rare thing where some can live at a place of deep joy. There are some that can live from a place of the fullness of the Spirit regardless of what life dishes up to them. Regardless of whether their, their circumstances are good and the, the bank balance is full and they have a career that is, that, is, uh, that is assured or they don't have a bank balance that is full, they are, they are not certain about their career, they still live at a place of joy. They still live with a freedom in the Spirit. That is, not, that is a rare thing. Even in Christians, that is a rare thing. And my point is this, that I want to live a life, I'm sure you want to live a life that is characterized by freedom in the Spirit, that is characterized by deep joy, no matter what life dishes up, no matter what this decade dishes up, no matter what 2011 dishes up, whether it's a year of great joy and ease, or whether it's a year of some valleys and some difficulties, I want to be a person that lives in a place of joy and freedom. That comes from the Holy Spirit. Amen? So I've got some very, very simple things to say this morning. And please, I hope that the simplicity of them will not detract from the power of them. The first thing I want to say is this. Is that it's, it's possible to know a great deal about God without knowing Him. It's possible to know a great deal about God without knowing Him. It's possible to love theology. It's possible to read lots of books. It's possible to navigate through your Bible well, to find your way easily. It's possible to be a person who can give your opinion on a whole lot of Christian subjects or related things to other Christians and seem to be wise and not really know God. Knowing lots about God is not the same as knowing Him. We might know many, many things about God and yet at the same time hardly know Him at all. Secondly, I want to say this. It's possible to know a great deal about godliness without knowing much about God at all. What I mean by that? Well, it just depends on what sermons you listen to. It just depends on what books you read to, the company that you keep. And there's a no shortage of reading matter or podcasts these days. You can get whatever you want on the internet. You can find out how to pray, how to evangelize, how to read your Bible, how to give your money, how to be a good Christian, how to be a young Christian, how to be an old Christian, how to be happy, how to be a good mom, how to be a good dad, how to lead people to Christ, how to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You can find anything that you want to find on the internet. My point is simply this. Well, let me say this as well. But you can find biographies of great Christians to inspire you from all of history. 
men and women who've done great things, led revivals. I mean, you can, you can find out a lot of stuff. And the, my point is this, that it's all secondhand. It's all secondhand ex, uh, reading or experience about Christian experience. You know, you can even with a good deal of common sense, you can take all of that stuff and you can help other Christians that are struggling and you can give them a couple of principles and say, this is how you should be a good husband and let me help you with this. And they can even say to you, what a nice man, what a great pastor, what a helpful person. And at the same time, you cannot really know God yourself. You see, there is this thing that there are certain people that despite the pleasantness of life or despite the unpleasantness of life, they navigate through with a deep sense of joy and knowledge of God. That is a profound thing. It is a rare thing. I want to say even in the church, it is a rare thing. So I'm trying to encourage you this morning that whatever the circumstance of your life or whatever you feel the cross is that you have to bear in terms of your life, that Paul... A man who knew God and Jesus, the perfect Son of God, lived their lives with great joy, even though they went through great hardship, because they, for the joy set before them, they endured all things. And Paul says, I consider all these things, and if you read his letters, he qualifies what all these things are. He says his, his, his education, who he was born as, he was a Jew of Jews, he was, he was uh, on the high end of the Pharisees. He had a great education. He said, I consider all those things done. If he was living today, he would have used another word, which is quite a strong word, but that's exactly what it means. For the sake of knowing Jesus. All those things, my nationality, where I come from, my skill, my talent base, my education, I consider all of that done for the sake of knowing who Christ is. Man, that's powerful. And so I put it to you this morning that you and I, we were made to worship. I love that song. You and I were made to worship. You and I, uh, who wrote it again? Um, whoever wrote it, but Chris Tomlin. I put it to you that you and I were born to know God. We are born, we are made to know God, and the aim of our lives is to know God fully and completely. And that's exactly what John 17 verse 3 says. It says, this is eternal life. You want to know what a definition of eternal life is? Here it is. This is eternal life that you know. That you know the only true God and Jesus whom he sent. That is eternal life. Knowing God. I put it to you that the thing that brings most joy, most delight, most contentment in your life, more than anything else is knowing God. <laughs> Jeremiah 9.23 this is what the Lord says let not the wise man boast in his wisdom let not the mighty man boast in his might let not the rich man boast in his riches but let him boast, boast in this that he understands and knows me not me, God Amen that's, that's where our boasting should be not in our riches, not in our talent not in our career, not in anything except knowing God, knowing Him. I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight. God delights in righteousness, love, justice. That's what He delights in. 
I would recommend a book by Tim Keller called, uh, what is it called? I've forgotten now. No? It's the new one on, uh, it's called uh, The God of Justice. And he talks about grace in our lives, and as we receive grace for our lives, we are transformed and we live justly towards others because of the grace of God in our own lives. I recommend you read that book. So if you're a Christian this morning and you've heard what I've said, your heart would leap within you, saying, God's highest goal for my life is to know Him. If your religion is formal, you'll say, well, what does that mean? <laughs> That's good. What, what does that mean? But I want to say those simple verses provide a foundation for our lives, shape to our future, and how to scale and measure as we walk with God and what we should really, really value. Those simple things say that. And when we have revelation that our main purpose on earth is to know God, then all of life's problems take, take their rightful place. They take the correct, correct perspective. But without that perspective, everything either becomes a problem or a bore. So there's, you know, there's, when things are going well, that's cool. But when they're not going well, it's all just problems. Or sometimes even success brings us a sense of boredom in our lives when it's like, well, gee, you know, it's all cool and it's going well, but there's that sense of, mm, there's something more. Or that something more is a desire for God and knowing Him more fully and more completely. Well, I hope you agree with me this morning in what I'm saying is true, but I want to just try and be a little bit more specific because even that phrase of saying life should be about knowing God can become a cliche unless we really understand what it means and it just becomes meaningless in the end. What am I talking about when I'm saying we should set our hearts to knowing God? Am I talking about a special kind of emotion that you should feel some kind of warm and fuzzy thing and then you've known God? Or am I talking about shivers down your spine, you know, some kind of mystical experience? Am I talking about that sort of um, rush that a drug taker might have? You know, sometimes there's an experience with God that is quite like that. It's like you have this amazing, it can only be described as a rush. We were praying for someone once and, um, in, our, in our, our, our lounge, and this, this guy just, he, he was a new believer. He, he, he didn't know anything. He'd come from an unsaved background, and he just whacked it. He hit the deck. He just kind of like, like this. And he came, kind of, the Holy Spirit just whacked him, and then he got up and he said, geez, that was a rush. And it was. Like, sometimes there's that emotional thing that happens when God comes upon you. You can't describe it. It's just incredible. Is that what I'm talking about? Is that knowing God? Uh, is it some kind of special theological, you know, intellect that you need to have to know God? Or is it some kind of, you need to have a vision of God or hear His voice or kind of, I have, I have a picture and all that. Is that knowing God? And I think it's important to look at those things because the Scripture says it's quite plain that we can actually think that we know God when we don't. So let's, let's make sure that we're aiming at the right thing. We don't want to live our lives and you know, not really know God at the end of it. We want to know Him. So what does it mean? I want to say this. Knowing God obviously is, um, is complex. It's more complex than knowing another person. I've discovered knowing someone over 18 years is a complex thing, isn't it? Those of you that are married. When you, you know, you think you, you do know each other and you get to know each other, but it's complex getting to know your partner. It's not, a, it's not an easy thing. It's, it isn't, is it? I mean, you're so different and you see things differently, but 
over a period of time, it gets sweeter and sweeter. But it's not a, it's not a hey, one that day you wake up and you know the person like that. It takes time. It's a complex thing. Um, it's much more complex knowing God than it is learning a language, for example. I mean, learning a language or, or something of that nature, you can, you can acquire by learning. You can simply get to a book and you can learn about it. Or if you, uh, we love going to the British Museum with our boys, and it's very wonderful to go and find out about stuff. And that's easy to do in one sense because you just go and you inspect that thing, you look at it, and you find out something of its history, and you get to know it a little bit. But getting to know people is much more complicated than that. Um, why? Because people sometimes hide things from you. Have you ever found that out? <laughs> what do I mean by that? Well, people keep secrets. People don't always open their hearts. Uh, I've found in my life that there's some people that I've known for many years that I don't know. There's some people that I've known for a short time that I know very well. Why is that? Because people either open their heart to you or they don't. And sometimes the measure to which people open their hearts to you is the measure that you can get to know them. So, you could say you know someone well, or you know, don't know someone well. You could say, I know someone from the inside out. I really know this person well. And often it's to do with how much you've opened your heart to that person, and that person has opened their heart to you. All right? And so, what I want to say is that Jeremiah 9.24 is actually an amazing, amazing scripture. Because when you read it, the God of the universe, the God who created all things is coming to you. He's coming to you. And he's talking to you. And he's talking to me through the scripture. And sometimes you might have, you, you might have been a Christian for many, many years. And then one day you wake up to this fact that God is speaking to you. He's not just speaking to everybody else. He's speaking to you. And perhaps when you hear God speaking to you, you might be humbled. You might feel like, oh, God, I, I'm just so aware of my sin. I'm so aware of my weakness, these burdens that I have, foolish things I've done in my life. I'm just so aware of those things. And you cry to God for forgiveness, and you feel that amazing sense of peace as you know that He's forgiven you. But it's not all, because the most amazing thing is that you start to realize that God is opening His heart to you. He's saying, I want to get to know you. I want your friendship. And so it's much deeper than that. It's, he's saying, I want to be a partner with you. I want to be a covenant partner with you. And I, I open my heart to you. And it's a staggering thing to even contemplate. But that is the truth of what the Bible says. This relationship that we have got with God, once we are we're saved by the grace of God, we have this amazing privilege that God enlists sinful, nasty people into his his family, and he says, I want to make you a partner with me, and not just a servant, but a friend. <laughs> just as you are, with all your nastiness, all your sinfulness, all your vindictiveness, all those things, those things are washed away by the blood of Jesus, and I choose you to be my friend. That's the gospel. Doesn't that stagger you? <laughs> and so I, I love the picture of Joseph taken from prison to become the prime minister, uh, accused of rape, and then in the household of, of Pharaoh ruling the land. And it's a picture for all of us, isn't it? Isn't it? Taken from darkness into light. Once prisoners of Satan, that's what the Bible says, once we were prisoners of the evil one, and now 
we are trusted members of God's family. Amazing. Every year at Christmas time, my brother-in-law Kevin gives me something to do with Winston Churchill, because Winston Churchill is one of my heroes, all right? And this year he gave me a picture, which is above my desk. And uh, thank you for that, Kevin. <laughs> and the uh, amazing thing about Churchill was, Churchill was a difficult man. He was a very, very focused, very difficult man to get along with. But you know what was an amazing thing? Is that people loved working with him. I found that fascinating. People loved working with him despite his personality inadequacies and his drivenness and his focus and all that stuff that used to get up people's nose. At the same time, those that worked with him closely loved him. And there was a sense that, and I, I was just thinking, that's an amazing thing. How much more shouldn't it be for us that our partners with the creator of the universe, how much more shouldn't we pride rise in our hearts in a, in a righteous sense that we are partnering with God? Not just a great politician, but with God. That we are servants of the Most High and sons of the Most High. So I want to say to you, for, for me, knowing God is not only responding to His Word and letting His Word speak to us. It's not only responding to the Holy Spirit and letting the Holy Spirit transform us. It's also, it's also hearing that invitation from Him saying, I want your friendship. It's a much more intimate thing than just reading the Scripture, praying a little, giving our money. It's much more intimate than that, knowing God. He's saying, I open my heart to you. Will you open your heart to me? That's what God wants from us. He wants intimacy from us. And so the Bible uses a number of pictures. It uses uh, a picture of God, that we know God like a son knows his father, that we know God like a wife knows her husband, that we know God as a subject knows a king. That's how we know God. We know God as a sheep is known by its shepherd. It uses those four primary pictures to describe how we know God. It's much more intimate than just, yeah, I know God. There's an there's a openness of a heart that God requires, but more amazing than that is that God opens his heart to us. And he says, I want you. I want your friendship. I want to get to know you. I value you. I, I want to spend time with you. Isn't that amazing? It, it, it does uh, help you with your reading and your devotions when actually your motivation is not, God, I need to do this every morning. I need to do this to satisfy something because if I don't, I'm going to lose my salvation. That's one motivation. Uh, if, you want, you know, if you want that motivation for your life, I, I, I want to say to you, all it's going to do, produce in you is anxiety and fear. And all it's going to produce in you is a drivenness that you have to pray every morning at 6 o'clock. And if you don't pray, you feel guilty. What about the fact that actually God wants to spend time with you? Isn't that a primarily different motivation? That actually, why you want to read, is simply because God wants to spend time with me. And he wants to know me. Just a thought, but I think it's a wonderful thought. It's a liberating thought. And so the Bible says it's possible to know God, and we looked at this over Christmas time, the absolute amazing wonder of the incarnation that God came fully and dwelt with us as a fully God and fully man. And the Bible says it is possible to know God if we know Jesus. If we have seen Jesus, we have seen God the Father. 
And the Holy Spirit is there to show us Jesus. That's what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is. It's to reveal more of Jesus. And Jesus says at the same time, I do nothing except what I see and hear my Father do. So the Spirit is always honoring Jesus. And Jesus is always honoring the Father in the perfect unity of the Godhead. It's a picture for us, isn't it? Picture for us, perfect unity in the Godhead, honoring each other as, as Christ honors the Father. And so uh, I want to read to you John 4, 14, verse 6. It just says this, Jesus speaking. Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So what does knowing Jesus mean then? I, I trust uh, this is helpful to you. What does knowing Jesus mean? Well, it's fascinating to look at the relationship that Jesus had with his disciples because the disciples were ordinary men. They had no special claims on Jesus' time. There was nothing about them or their education or anything about them that warranted that they would have special time with Jesus. And yet, Jesus was the one who spoke with absolute authority. He was much more than a prophet. He was the one who inspired them increasingly in their awe of him, in their devotion of him, until they could do nothing else except the knowledge that he was the Son of God. He was Messiah. And the amazing thing is that Jesus, when you look at the, the disciples and his relationship with them, Jesus was the one who found them. Jesus is the one who called them. Jesus is the one who said, I want you to be my friend. He initiated everything. Isn't that amazing? you? And Jesus still comes and he initiates with us and he says, I choose you, I want you. I want friendship with you. And so for me, knowing Jesus is primarily about personal discipleship. It's about becoming a disciple. Jesus wants more than just converts. People who put up their hand and say, yes, I recognize I'm a sinner. Jesus wants disciples. He wants those that all walk with him. He wants friendship with people. He wants intimacy with people. All those things about prayer and giving our money and all those things, they're all about discipleship. They, they really are. They're all about us becoming disciples. When you're a disciple of someone, you willingly give all for them. That's what it's about. And Jesus says, uh, John 10, 27, my sheep know my voice, I know them, and they follow me. It's about discipleship primarily. And his voice, when we hear his voice, it's that of his call, his promises, his claim on our lives. That's what it means to hear the voice of God. That we hear that he has got a claim on us, that he, he, he's got it, his heart is open towards us. He, he wants friendship with us. That's what it means to hear his voice as a sheep knows a shepherd's voice. And what is Jesus? Jesus uses these, uh, these phrases. He says he's the bread of life. He's the door for the sheep. He's the good shepherd. He's the resurrection. He's the life. He says if we want to come and have burden-free lives, how many of you want a burden-free life? I want a burden-free life. What does Jesus say? He says, well, it's easy. If you come to me, those of you that are weary and burdened, and you take, give me your weariness and your burden, and I will take it upon myself, and my yoke is easy, and my yoke is light, and when you do that, you will find rest. You know, the gospel is amazingly 
It's so anti, it's not anti, it's so opposite of what we would naturally do. You see, because we would naturally just try harder. I must get through this. I must do this. I must be a better person. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Take all of that stuff, all of that trying hard, all of that burden, all of that stuff, that weariness that drives you like that. Just put it on me and just come and walk with me. And those who walk by the Spirit deliberately will fulfill, fulfill the law accidentally and I will transform you from the inside out. Without you actually trying, you'll just see that something is different in your life if you let my Spirit work in you. I mean, why would we want to live like like that when we can live like this? Let the gospel transform you. <laughs> let Jesus transform you from the inside out. How long have I been going? 45 minutes. Cool. Okay, I've got three points. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. This, these will be brief as I finish. Knowing God, one, is about His personal dealing with us. Knowing God is about His personal you know, Hebrews says that He treats those that are sons. He disciplines those that are sons. So, knowing Him is about direct and personal relationship with Him. It's... it's, uh, it's it's about you opening yourself to Him as He reveals yourself to you, and it's allowing Him to deal with you as He gets to know you. It's about trusting Him with all of your heart. That's what it's about. And since we've had such a, an amazing uh, time over Christmas and New Year, I, I, I trust you've eaten well at this time. Uh, I, I thought it would be good just to use an illustration of food, because food is probably utmost in my mind right now. You see, it's about tasting in our hearts what we say is a reality for us in our, in our heads. Someone who is a simple reader of the Word, who takes the Word and reads it, or hears a sermon, and applies that to their life, will very quickly develop a far deeper relationship with God than someone who's a scholar who simply wants to know what is theologically correct. Because it's about applying His truth in our lives, in a personal way. Um, it's about his, secondly, it's about his personal involvement in our lives. So when you taste a dish of food, if you take a Jamie Oliver re recipe, I wish I'd written that 30-minute 30, 30 meals. This sold a million and a half copies. It's the biggest selling nonfiction book of the last hundred years. Do you know that? <laughs> Jamie Oliver. That's amazing. <laughs> All right, anyway. When you take the recipe and you can read the recipe, and you can do the recipe, or you can hear a chef demonstrate a recipe. It's all very well and good, but until you've tasted it, you don't really know what it tastes like, do you? You can have an idea, but until you've actually tasted it, you don't know what it is. So I can say a lot to you about who I am. You can say, this is who I am, this is what I like, this is what I do, this is what I don't like to do. But it's only when you begin to taste somebody else in friendship with them that you really get to know whether what they say is true or not. I mean, I can say a lot of stuff about myself, and I can fool many of you, but until, until you get to know me in friendship, you're not going to know whether I'm saying it's true or whether it's not true. All right? And it's as we get to know each other, as I've got to know Jill a little, I've got to have more concern about the Welsh, because Jill's Welsh, and so I get to know, and she, we, right, or whatever. And you, sh you, can, you share concern with someone, you begin to love them, they begin to love you, and you're, there's a mutual concern that begins to grow for that person. All right? 
And that's also true with our knowledge of God. It's exactly true with our knowledge of God. I want to just say this. God doesn't exist for our comfort or to make this year easy or to make this year um, easier for us, like some kind of religious antidote for pain. But a relationship with God is an emotional experience. It has a deep sense of, of, of emotion associated with it. It's not just intellectual. The Bible's full of emotional language. For example, when Barnabas comes to Antioch, it says he saw the evidence of the grace of God and he was glad. He was happy. The psalmist, on the other hand, feels the opposite. He says in uh, Psalm 119, streams of tears flow from my eyes because your law is not obeyed. So there's a sense, there's great joy in the gospel. There's, there's also, as we share in God's victories, there's joy. We share in the pain when things go wrong. But there's this delight. It's an emotional thing. It's knowing God personally. And, and lastly, I want to say this. Knowing God is about grace. It's a matter of grace. You see, the initiative for relationship and friendship is always from God's part towards me. He always takes the initiative. It's always Him making friends with us. Galatians 4, 9 Paul writes to the Galatian church, says, now that you are known to God, now that you are known to God, it's what he's saying is that it's always grace that comes first. It's, it always is the fundamental thing in our salvation is that God initiates all the time. The initiation is from his side. We can know him by faith because he first reaches out to us in grace. So knowing God is always about salvation. It's always about his grace extent to us. His initiative in loving us and choosing us and redeeming us and calling us and enabling us to persevere. And God knows us through and through. There's also another meaning of, the, of knowing God. And if I want to just uh, give you a couple of scriptures, Exodus 33:17, The Lord says to Moses, This very thing that you've spoken to me I will do, for you have found favor in my eyes, and I know you by name. Yeah? Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you, I knew you. John 10, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and they know me. Or verse 28, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. So God wants to know us as a deeply personal thing. It's a deeply emotional thing. It's a deeply affectionate thing. It's a covenantal thing. It's always initiated by him. What matters most of all is not that I know God, but that He knows me. That's the most important thing. I'm written on the palm of His hand. I'm never out of His mind. And all that I need is because of His knowledge of me and His sustaining of His initiative towards me. He loved me when I was at my worst. When I was dead in sin, he loved me. He sees everything that is twisted and nasty about me. And yet he sees all my corruption. And still he loves me perfectly. He still, having seen all of that, he still says, and I choose you to be my friend. Petri, I choose you. Claire, I choose you. Doug, I choose you. And I, I want to say, when I, the more I realize that, the more fully I realize that, all that happens in my heart is that I want to worship. I want to say, thank you, God. Thank you so much 
despite all that you've seen, you've still loved me. For whatever reason, you've chosen me. You desire my friendship. And you gave your son to die for me. I want to say thank you, Lord, that that can come about. That's the wonder of the gospel. And my encouragement to you this year, as we start the new year, is that you would find your roots going deeper and deeper and deeper into those things. Not into anything else, but into those things. Into knowledge of God, to personal relationship with Him, to opening your heart with Him, even when it's even when it's hurt, when it's hurting, and He's putting His finger on some things that need to change. That you'd allow Him to transform you, but from the inside out by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that will enable all of us to stand when the storms come. And there will be some storms this year, but hopefully the, the mountain tops are going to be greater than the storms that we're going to walk through. Amen.